Welcome to Present Value. Hey everyone, Michael Brady here, host and co-founder of Present Value. For the first time, but surely not the last, we have a returning guest joining us for this episode. Professor Robert Hockett has a great conversation with Harrison Job about the Green New Deal, or the GND. Hockett takes listeners through the origins of the Green New Deal, gives some great historical background on Roosevelt's New Deal, and walks us through the major highlights of the resolution. For anyone looking to gain a rich understanding of what the Green New Deal is and how GND advocates such as Hockett are pushing it forward, this episode is certainly for you. And now, Present Value with Harrison Job and Professor Robert Hockett. Here again in the Present Value studio, we welcome Professor Robert Hockett. Hockett is the Edward Cornell Law Professor here at Cornell Law School. He is a frequent contributor for many publications, including Forbes, The Financial Times, Fortune, and Bloomberg Radio. Hockett is a regular advisor to Senator Bernie Sanders, Senator Elizabeth Warren, and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Professor Hockett returns to Present Value to discuss the Green New Deal and surrounding political and economic issues. Professor Hockett, thanks so much for joining us today on Present Value. Oh, thanks so much, Harrison. It's just really a delight to be with you again and a great honor to be your first, I guess, repeat uh, guest. <laughs> what a joy. Absolutely. Thanks. So for our listeners, as we get into discussion on the Green New Deal, let's first just note that this is not an actually fully realized bill. It's more of a non-binding resolution with some very broad overarching goals. This, of course, was introduced by Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Ed Markey in the House and Senate. I'm excited to get into some of the specific policy proposals, but first, Professor Hockett, can you walk us through some of the main goals of the Green New Deal? Yeah. So there are two overarching goals. And the sort of wonderful thing about this moment is that these two goals basically converge, basically by satisfying one adequately, you satisfy the other one while you're at it. And this is quite unusual, right? So first, the thought is that the entire U.S. infrastructure and manufacturing base is in dire need of a comprehensive overhaul, right? As you know, the American Society of Civil Engineers has been uh, issuing report cards on the state of American infrastructure for a good many years now. And they've been suggesting, indeed more than suggesting, crying out urgently for a multi-trillion dollar investment in simply a total revamping and overhauling of our infrastructural system or infrastructural base. By the same token, American manufacturing is also no longer state-of-the-art as, as far as the techniques and the technologies are concerned there. So the nation has been in dire need of this sort of comprehensive overhaul for a long, long time. So the first goal is to convert the United States into, once again, a sort of state-of-the-art infrastructural and manufacturing powerhouse. Now, as it happens, state-of-the-art right now also happens to mean green, right? All of the newest and most sort of uh, cutting-edge uh, technologies and techniques out there are themselves environmentally sustainable. That's just the way the technology has evolved over the decades. And so a comprehensive overhaul ends up also being a kind of comprehensive greenification by the same token, right? If we had decided first that we want to sort of comprehensively greenify, well, that would involve replacing or revamping all of our infrastructure and, again, manufacturing capacities. 
while we would be at it. Uh, and so if we started from the green side of the Green New Deal, we would end up in the same space as far as infrastructure and manufacturing uh, capacities go. So basically, we've just decided, well, let's go ahead and recognize explicitly both of those two ambitious long-term goals that it's hard for us to imagine anybody actually disagreeing with or objecting to. And basically, by doing this, we get a kind of a twofer, right? We get both that sort of comprehensive overhaul and modernization of our economy and that greenification. And of course, at its core, the idea of a Green New Deal is combating climate change. But the severity of climate change and indeed our political inaction seems to be lost in much of the coverage of this issue and of this resolution. It seems like there's just more political theater, lots of bad faith actors and sound bites. You know, in reality, climate change is an existential threat. I'd love to just hear your thoughts on sort of the magnitude, I guess, of the problem, because I don't want that to be obscured. That should really anchor any conversation we're having about the Green New Deal. Yeah, thanks so much for introducing that, Harrison. That is a critical point, and I think you're quite right, that it tends to be lost uh, in the current sort of rhetoric or, or sort of hubbub around the Green New Deal. There are probably a couple of reasons for that that we can get into in a moment. But to start with, yeah, the fact of the matter, it's that there is an overwhelming consensus among climate scientists right now that we really have about 10 to 12 years to turn this thing around before we reach a proverbial tipping point at which it's no longer possible to retrieve any semblance of a truly livable and sustainable planet. So, you know, we don't really have much choice here. It is indeed an existential threat. And that, of course, is a, yet another impetus, of course, to action and to massive action, to sort of moonshot-type action, as the congresswoman sometimes describes it. Truly ambitious scale uh, is necessary. Another way to put this is to say the question is no longer whether we do this. It's really when and how fast, right? And we don't even have that much leeway when it comes to when or how fast because, again, we've only got about a decade to 12 years or so to sort of turn it around. As to why this sort of underlying sort of deep fact or this sort of existential backdrop to the Green New Deal isn't discussed so much right now and isn't so much part of the public discussion, I think that's largely because of what really is driving the discussion right now, at least on at least one side of the aisle in Congress. And that is the Green New Deal is being used as a kind of symbol or a kind of a flag or banner under which to attack right, certain Congress members who I think are experienced as threatening by some old guard types in the Congress. Right, So there's a sense in which Republicans in particular are sort of making this about AOC and, you know, on the one hand, that's not altogether uncalled for or inapposite because she is sort of the driving force behind this. And she is indeed the person who I think is more responsible than anybody else by far for this now being on the national agenda and being so widely discussed. That being said, however, the thing that seems to have most Republicans and some others truly exercised about the congresswoman is the fact that on the one hand, she is indeed very progressive. She's the sort of poster child, you might say, for the sort of revival of progressivism in the Democratic Party. And at the same time, she is wildly popular among the broader public, right? She's the proverbial rock star. And I think so some old guard types on the right and even on the sort of center right find her threatening in that sense because she's so formidable as a political actor in this respect, she's remarkably reminiscent of Franklin Roosevelt himself, of course, the name with whom or the name that we tend to associate most closely with the original New Deal. 
He was the proverbial happy warrior. You know, as he said, he welcomed their criticism and their attacks and seemed to relish the fight. And that made him a very effective political figure who, in consequence, truly, truly horrified and scared, right, the sort of reactionary types. And I think that the congresswoman really is this particular era's FDR in those respects. So most, she seems to obsess the right right now. But in any event, because that's what they're sort of on about or what they're exercised by, we don't end up talking much, it seems, at least when we're responding to them, about that existential backdrop that I think you so helpfully uh, reminded us all of just now. So can you give us a few concrete examples or initiatives or early bills that would constitute big policy achievements or wins in the beginning of a Green Deal era? And of course, Professor Hockett, I'm aware of the pitfalls of this question, but can you take us through how we will pay for some of these expensive initiatives that might be involved? Yeah, yeah. So I guess a a couple of things to say there, that is indeed a big pair of questions. So what I'll try to do is, you know, sort of give you concise answers to them that are sort of specific, but without getting too, you know, sort of tedious. So on the one hand, we want to convert the entire economy to basically net carbon neutrality by the end of the 10 to 12 year period that we're talking about. And what that means is massive conversion over to renewable energy sources when it comes to manufacturing, when it comes to basic infrastructure, even when it comes to ordinary consumption. So the plan then is, first of all, to overhaul the infrastructural base, again, comprehensively, as I mentioned earlier, and for each sort of replaced or sort of newly introduced infrastructure to ensure that the infrastructure in question is itself carbon neutral, at least when combined with other infrastructures, right? So that the infrastructure as a whole will be carbon neutral. Secondly, uh, to convert our manufacturing modalities across industries into, again, carbon neutral modalities, basically by emphasizing much heavier use of renewables in addition to various forms of carbon renewal. Thirdly, then, we'd like to see and we'd like to facilitate publicly the conversion of all office buildings and even residential buildings and residential spaces to, again, use of renewable uh, energies. And, of course, conversion of the uh, sort of automotive infrastructure, you might say, to renewables uh, as well. So it's quite comprehensive in its reach in that particular sense, right? The idea is to make everything either renewable or part of a totality that is itself carbon neutral, right? Now, in doing that, of course, you're going to be doing a bunch of other things as just sort of side effects or as incidents of that modernization. And those particular incidents of the modernization take us a long way toward addressing the so-called pay-for question that some people raise, right? So the first point is this. When we actually revamp our infrastructure and our manufacturing base, and when we get to actually converting public buildings, private industrial buildings or office buildings, and then even residences to the use of renewable energy sources, we are going to be engaged in massively productive activity, right? We would be truly magnifying by many orders of magnitude the production of and the installation of, for example, solar panels, the installation and use of electric car recharging stations at, say, every parking meter of the country, or at least many parking meters of the country. We would be talking about massively either building new or revamping or renovating existing 
manufacturing sites, right, factories uh, and other and sort of industrial parks and industrial sort of centers, I guess they would often be called now. These are all massive boosts to productivity on the one hand, and they are themselves productive activities on the other hand. That's significant, I think, in many, many ways. But one reason it's especially significant in connection with the pay-for question is that really, if you think about the pay-for question, what it really boils down to is a, a what about inflation question, right? In other words, there's never any real question about how to pay for something if the federal government is involved in doing it. Because as you and I have talked about before on this very podcast or this very program, a nation that issues its own currency doesn't have any trouble paying for things with its own currency, right? That's never the problem. The problem is always, right, whether there's an overissuance of currency. In other words, whether there might be an inflation problem. So pay-for questions are sort of code for inflation questions. Now, once we recognize that fact, it's very easy to see how what we have in mind for the Green New Deal is itself counterinflationary rather than inflationary. The key point here, I think, to fixate on is the fact that inflation, as I keep saying to other people, is a relation, right? It's an easy way to remember this point. Inflation is a relation. It's a relation between the quantity of money that's actually spent uh, on the one hand and the quantity of goods or services that that money can command on the other. So if in the very act of raising or uh, boosting or increasing the money supply, you're also increasing the supply of goods and services that can absorb that money, then you're actually acting in an either inflation neutral or even a counterinflationary, that is to say, deflationary way. And in our view, this is one thing that makes the Green New Deal's ambition a real selling point. Because as you know, over the last 30 or 40 years, environmental policy, insofar as we've had it, has always been quite incrementalist, very humble, very small. It sometimes involves then additional public expenditure, but there's typically not an offset in the form of additional productivity or greater productivity or greater quantities of goods and services that are made available by the incremental expenditure. And what that means in turn is that sort of ironically, if not paradoxically, going small here is more dangerous as far as pay for is concerned than is going large here. Because again, once we recognize that pay for really means inflation, and then once we recognize that boosting productivity is counterinflationary and that we're only going to boost productivity and production itself by going big, then it's very easy to see how going big is actually the more feasible, the more financially feasible option here than is, it's much more feasible, in other words, than is the kind of slow walk or low ball method of environmentalism that we've sort of relied on, I guess you could say, almost exclusively over the last three or four decades. As we've discussed, there is certainly some structural overlap in the vision of the Green New Deal and the original New Deal. And of course, the name implies that in that there would be a multitude of legislative and statutory actions rolled out over something like a decade. Can you help me and our listeners understand that history and how this would work within the context of the Green New Deal in sort of a very different political environment in the 1930s? Great question. Thanks, Harrison. Yeah. So easy to address this one as well. And a couple of things to say, and I'll try to say them concisely without being tedious. So the first is this. Note a really interesting irony about how the Green New Deal compares to what we've done lately. So a moment ago, I mentioned that 
What we've done lately has typically been quite incrementalist in character. It's been quite sort of, you know, humble or sort of setting the sights low, not swinging for the fences, but hoping just to get a single or maybe a double rather than the proverbial home run or grand slam. The irony is that in order to be incrementalist in that way that we've tended to try to be over the last 30 to 40 years, we've tended to enact massively large, sprawling statutes. It's almost as though there's an inverse relation between the ambition of the plan and (laughs) the size of the statute that sort of lays out the plan. I suppose that's because in order to be incremental, you have to spend an awful lot of time saying what you don't want to do or what you're not doing and not so much time talking about what you do want to do. So, of course, you know, notoriously, uh, the Affordable Care Act of President Obama, which definitely represented an advance over where we were before the ACA, was nevertheless very humble in comparison, say, to something like single payer or Medicare for all. And one consequence, I would argue, of that sort of humility of Obamacare was the fact that the statute itself was more than 2,000 pages long, really, really really long. By the same token, right, the Dodd-Frank Act passed to sort of re-regulate Wall Street in the wake of the 2008 crash did very little, just basically enacted a number of sort of very smallish incremental improvements to our regulatory structure. And again, it was a massively long statute. Now, contrast that with what we're doing in the Green New Deal on the one hand and with what was done in the original New Deal on the other hand. So the original New Deal was really, really ambitious. It was very comprehensive in its vision. And the idea was that it would basically unfold over the course of a decade or more. And it unfolded in the form of a multitude, as you noted a moment ago, of distinct statutes that were sort of sequentially enacted. And each one of these statutes, in turn, was relatively brief in its length, right? Not a lot of pages, not a lot of words, because the idea that was at the core of the plan in each case was a relatively simple yet far-reaching idea. We're trying to do the same thing with the Green New Deal. What we imagine is over the course of the coming decade, we enact a sequence of individual statutes, each one sort of discreetly targeted at one part of the climate or infrastructural or manufacturing or inequality problem that all of which, of course, afflict our economy today. So each of these statutes will be relatively brief, relatively simple in its conception, but very, very far-reaching as well. That's the plan for the Green New Deal. And again, that's exactly what was done in the original New Deal. What I've just told you also goes a long way toward explaining the nature of the Green New Deal resolution itself. So the resolution, as you know, was announced uh, officially earlier last month, almost exactly a month ago. I believe it was the 7th of uh, February. We've got something like 90-plus members of the House who have signed on as co-sponsors now. We have upwards of 20 senators as well who have signed on, including, I believe, literally every announced candidate for the Democratic nomination for the presidency. But one thing that made it easy to get that much support right from the get-go was precisely the fact that everybody could read the entirety of the resolution relatively quickly because it's a rather brief resolution, six or seven pages in length. Now, what it does is it lays out in broad outline those basic goals that you asked me to articulate a few minutes ago. So it's basically the the sort of initial announcement of what the sort of targets are. But again, I use the word target here in a sort of specialized sense. It's not sort of specified quantities of this, that, or the other thing. It's rather specific goals when it comes to sort of what we're looking at when it comes to revamping or revitalizing or remodeling in the way that I just said. So what the resolution does basically is it sort of announces an intention to begin to develop a comprehensive Green New Deal 
that will unfold again over the course of a decade or more. I like to think of it as the sort of opening gavel in what will become a national discussion. And again, the thing to note here is that that's exactly the way the original New Deal operated. The original New Deal did not take the form of one great big massive statute like Obamacare or the Dodd-Frank Act or anything of that sort. It took the form of, again, a multitude of sequentially enacted statutes, all of which were relatively simple and relatively brief, and all of which were arrived at only after a very widespread national discussion including Democrats, Republicans, and others all along the way. One way to think about the original New Deal was as a sort of an imperfect, but at least intended, big national democratic deliberation carried on in a sort of spirit of experimentation. So a pilot program would be tried. If it worked, it was scaled up. If it didn't work, it was discarded and something new was tried. Franklin Roosevelt sort of famously said, Try something. Try anything. If it works, keep it. If it doesn't work, discard it. But above all else, try something. That was that sort of experimental spirit of the New Deal itself, which went hand in hand with that democratic spirit of it. That's precisely what we want to do with the Green New Deal. We want there to be a national discussion about every feature, every aspect of the Green New Deal as we roll it out sequentially in statute after statute after statute. And in that sense, the resolution that was released just a month ago can be viewed again as the sort of opening gavel in this great big national discussion. We want and we expect that there will be heavy participation by Republicans and Democrats alike. And that's partly because this is going to affect everybody. It's partly because everybody, you know, Republicans are never shy about saying what they think. It's also partly in owing to one other feature I'll emphasize before I stop for the moment, that the Green New Deal will share with the original New Deal. So here's something that a lot of people tend to forget if they ever knew about the original New Deal. It had big projects underway in literally every congressional district of the country, whether it was red or blue, whether it was Republican or Democrat or something else, every single congressional district had New Deal projects going on. Now, that was on the one hand politically savvy and smart because it means you get buy-in from everybody. Everybody you know benefits, so everybody's in favor. In that sense, it was kind of like the way we do national defense now, where we have defense projects in pretty much every district as well, which is one reason that we keep spending lots on defense without people balking very much about it. So, you know, it's politically savvy in that sense, but it's more than just politically savvy. There is more than just an instrumental value in doing this. There is an intrinsic value in doing it this way because that's part of what makes it democratic. And we're quite serious about the democratic character of the Green New Deal. We want it to be democratic. Another way to describe it is to say this is a way of making it just, right, distributively just. Justice requires that everybody benefit by the Green New Deal since everybody in one way or another is going to be contributing to the Green New Deal. So given the fact that that's the plan and that's how the original New Deal operated, we expect that there's going to be a great deal of support as well as a great deal of discussion about the Green New Deal. Furthermore, insofar as every district is going to be benefiting, every district is going to be making suggestions, right? Basically, local governments or local coalitions of business leaders and labor leaders and other community groups in each particular district will be putting in their input, so to speak, when it comes to designing particular plans or programs that will be operating in each particular district. Something that you brought up that I think is is really interesting is the fact that the Green New Deal came directly after the Depression. There were very visible, deeply felt, obvious 
problems. That's very different from climate change. Gallup recently had a poll that said 54% of Americans don't believe global warming will cause problems in their lifetimes. And of course, there's a large gap between Democrats and Republicans. So that's the part that I'm interested in getting into, right? Because in the original New Deal, we have this obvious thing we have to fix that's sort of everyone's on board. And now we have a situation where only half of the country believes it's something that's even going to affect them. Hmm. How do you see that playing out? Because that's one of the big distinctions I worry about. Yeah. So, no, it's a very, very important question and very important point. The way I think best to answer it is to sort of start with emphasizing that non-environmental aspect of the Green New Deal, right? So remember that a big part of the animating vision of the Green New Deal is the New Deal part as distinguished from the Green part. That is to say, I think that most people in the country would agree that there is a long-term economic problem that we're still living with. That problem obviously manifested itself dramatically in 2008 with the crash. And it is, of course, obvious that we're not in quite as dire an economic situation right now as we were, say, in 2009, 10 years ago, shortly after the 2008 crash. That being said, however, we still are in dire straits. Private debt loads are rising again enormously, which is exactly what happened before the 2008 crash itself. The nation's income and wealth inequality problem, which by 2008 had reached a level that had not previously been seen in this country since the fateful year of 1929, is still with us. The inequality problem is no better now than it was in 2009. The so-called low unemployment rate and the so-called jobs boom is itself a sham that I think a lot of people recognize, which is, again, I think a big reason why many people voted for Donald Trump in 2016. Basically, as you know, the unemployment figures never count those who have tried for so long and failed to find work that they eventually give up looking. What that means in turn is that a much more revealing statistic to track, to look at and to track, is the labor force participation rate, which is still extremely low by historical standards, hardly any higher than it was in the immediate aftermath of the 2008 crash. Furthermore, the overwhelmingly greater part of the new jobs that have come along in the last decade are very, very low paying to the point where Bob Dole's famous old quip from the late 1990s, yeah, President Clinton has created so many jobs and I met a fellow the other day who's got three of them, is just as apposite now as it was then, right? People are having to hold multiple jobs in order just to make ends meet. These are not jobs, in other words, they're paying living wages. Given all of those facts and other, I mean, I could, I could sort of rattle off a bunch more in a, in a veritable sort of parade of horribles here. I think most Americans do viscerally feel that there is a serious ongoing economic problem that we haven't really ultimately addressed and solved the underlying problems that manifested themselves so dramatically in 2008 and which in consequence are all but inevitably going to manifest themselves again in financial drama in the days ahead. So the first point then is that insofar as the Green New Deal is meant to address that underlying economic malaise, people should be able to appreciate that it is indeed urgently needed. Now, once they appreciate that, and again, my suspicion is that they do appreciate that, as you know, large percentages of Americans do believe that the infrastructural base of the country is crumbling and needs a revamping. Large majorities of the population do recognize that our manufacturing base is hollowed out and has to be revamped. 
large percentages of Americans do recognize that there's a long-term problem with suppressed or depressed wages and salaries. The huge numbers of Americans recognize that there's an inequality problem. Given that they all recognize that, I would think that they're going to be very excited about the Green New Deal on that ground already. But then once you have that, the greenness of the Green New Deal takes care of itself for the reason that I mentioned a moment ago, which is that, again, to revamp right now is to go comprehensively state-of-the-art. And state-of-the-art right now just is green. You just don't find new and exciting technologies out there that are not already environmentally sustainable. So in that sense, the greenness of the Green New Deal can kind of ride piggyback on the New Deal part of the Green New Deal. And of course, that's the respect in which the Green New Deal actually replicates the original New Deal. I'll pause for a moment now because I know you have lots of other questions, but one thing that we could talk about, and maybe you're already planning to ask about this, is just how the Green New Deal actually would address those long-term underlying problems of economic malaise, right? How would the Green New Deal address inequality? How would it address the hollowing out of our manufacturing base? How would it address the crumbling state of our, our national infrastructure? And so on and so forth. So I'm happy to, to address that at some point as well, either now or whenever we come to that. Yeah, that's fantastic, actually. We were going to ask you about that next. I'd love to get into one of the components of the Green New Deal that's received a lot of attention, which is the inclusion of a federal jobs guarantee. Can you take us through what a jobs guarantee would look like and, and why that's part of a greenification and infrastructure program? Yeah, yeah, sure. The job guarantee, in a way, is itself another sort of resonance or point of resonance with the original New Deal. And here's what I mean by that. As you know, during the original New Deal, there was a massive boosting in the employment, indeed the direct federal or state or local employment, of masses of then unemployed labor. Of course, Part of what made the Great Depression great was the fact that the national unemployment rate was well over 25%, right? Many, many people were out of work. That represented both an injustice because you had lots of people who wanted to work, were ready to work, but simply couldn't work. And of course, a massive waste, right? A massive loss. There was an efficiency problem, in other words, as well, because an unemployment rate that high is essentially an unused capacity, right? An idle capacity problem. It's quite equivalent, right, to having lots of factories that just aren't doing anything, that aren't producing anything. They're just sort of sitting there idle, or it's like land that's lying fallow, right? So direct employment of folk who were unemployed was a part of the New Deal itself. Furthermore, some people will remember or have perhaps read that shortly before he died, in his final inaugural address, President Roosevelt announced an intention to pursue and to work with Congress to enact what he called a second Bill of Rights that was going to be very much about economic and social rights that Americans should enjoy. That was going to include retirement security. It was going to include guaranteed employment. It was going to include guaranteed access to health care or health insurance. That second Bill of Rights, in the end, didn't end up being pursued, essentially because President Roosevelt died prematurely only a few months, indeed, after giving that final inaugural address in April of 1945. So there was, of course, the Second World War to complete the winning of. And then, of course, fairly soon after that, there was the need to rebuild Europe and the rest of the world to reconstruct after the war. And then before long after that, there was a Cold War, which tended to put kind of national sort of social and economic policy on ice. 
as the nation's attentions turns to uh, foreign policy. So you can view the jobs guarantee component of the Green New Deal as both directly replicating the direct employment features of the original New Deal and taking up where President Roosevelt left off with that economic bill of rights. Because, you know, we've now had 70 some years that have passed since that time. And, you know, it's time, we think, to go ahead and, and put that into place. Now, another thing that's maybe worth noting about the job guarantee is it really offers a number of really wonderful advantages to the Green New Deal itself and to our national economy in itself, right? So the first is, in one fell swoop, it takes care of the unemployment problem. It also enables businesses to sort of make decisions on the basis of a certain confidence that they can have, that consumer purchasing power will always be there in our economy, right? One of the most important difficulties, I think, that businesses face in the absence of something like a job guarantee is a particular form of uncertainty when they contemplate the future. And that is uncertainty about whether the national employment rate will indeed be a full employment rate in the full sense of the word, right, where you are actually talking about literally everybody who needs or wants a job able to find a job. When businesses can count on that, when they can rely on that, they can rely on there being a market for the goods that they might produce. And that means that they will continue to invest in order to do that producing. And that means in turn, then, that you have a continual investment process underway and hence continued economic growth. Now, contrast that situation to what businesses confront in the absence of anything like a job guarantee. What they have to worry about is that, well, you know, it might come to pass in the near future that suddenly there's a higher unemployment rate. Suddenly there's a recession. Suddenly people are being laid off. Suddenly people are having to tighten their belts and thus not consume. That leads, of course, a rational business planner to cut back on investment in productive activity because, again, if you simply produce a bunch of stuff that can't be bought because consumer purchasing power is draining out of the economy, you're basically just wasting money and, in a sense, sort of accelerating the rate at which you reach a point where you yourself have to start laying people off or cutting back or tightening your belt. Another way of saying this is to say, that the full employment problem is a massive collective action problem of the kind that you and I have talked about before. And indeed, as I recall, we talked about this in our last time together. The real key feature, the thing that makes the employment problem a collective action problem is that every individual business wants the national employment rate to be full employment because, again, that's the only way that they can sell their goods. But at the same time, no individual business can make that the case. No individual business can see to it that the entire national labor force is employed. At least we hope that no business can do that because if it could, it would be a monopoly. So what you have then is it's a situation where it can oftentimes be individually rational for a firm either not to invest or indeed even to disinvest or to lay off workers in order to sort of cut costs when sales are down because there's some sort of an employment problem out there in the, in the larger economy. When each firm is acting in this individually rational manner, all of those actions together aggregate into the proverbial downward spiral, right? Where firm A lays people off, then firm B lays people off. That leads to sort of further economic contraction, which which leads firm C and D to lay people off and leads firms A and B to lay even more people off. That's the proverbial downward spiral of recession. And it's precisely in owing to the fact that it's a collective action problem that it can only be solved through an exercise of collective agency. Now, as we talked about last time, we have a more sort of homespun word for collective agency. We call it government, right? 
Now, what you do then is you solve the employment problem through an exercise of collective agency. That exercise just is what the job guarantee is. And what that does is, again, it solves that problem for individual businesses so that then they can plan ahead and invest in production because they know there's always going to be a market. So the job guarantee introduces a virtuous circle as distinguished from the vicious circle of layoffs and more layoffs and more layoffs as an economy contracts. It puts in place the structural prerequisite for a virtuous circle that spirals upward forever rather than spiraling downward to the point where we're sort of back to sort of subsistence level production and consumption. So that's another reason that we want the job guarantee in there. One final point, I think, that really bears emphasis. Another thing I think that you and I talked about in our last time together during our first podcast was this notion of a systemically important price, right? This this is something I've been writing about for some time. One reason that we have the New York Fed trading desk buying and selling treasury securities either directly or through synthetic transactions of the repo variety every day is that we say we've decided as a public that the interest rate or prevailing interest rates constitute a systemically important price precisely because they enter into the formation of so many other prices. Well, if you think about it, prevailing wage and salary rates also constitute a systemically important price. They are a price that also goes into the formation of other prices in other markets. And that means they are inherently of public interest, right, in the same way that interest rates are. What that means in turn, then, is that the same considerations that justify what we call open market operations on the part of the New York Fed trading desk can justify what I call open labor market operations, which is just what the job guarantee is. And indeed, I have a piece coming out shortly in the Economic Journal Challenge that's titled uh, Open Labor Market Operations that sort of plays up and discusses at length, sort of lays out the the fuller or broader implications of this particular aspect of or feature of the job guarantee. Note also that it makes for then a very nice lever through which we can adjust prevailing wage and salary rates without having in some kind of clunky way, like every 20 or 30 years, have Congress pass a national minimum wage or have various localities pass a minimum wage. We can fine tune and adjust in very quick, short order in the same way that we do with interest rates through, again, the open market operations of the New York Trading Desk. It's, in other words, a kind of public option for employment that enables us to affect prevailing wage and salaries very quickly if it looks like that's necessary to boost consumer purchasing power and thereby keep the economy growing and keep the profits coming into the firms of America. Offers us a means of also influencing working conditions, right? If you can get a guaranteed job through the federal government, that doesn't involve sweatshop labor or you know working overtime for no additional pay or whatever, or that involves no family or medical leave, you can always move over to the federally provided job that does offer these things. That then forces private companies, if they want to be able to employ people, to keep pace. So it's a great way of maintaining and raising standards for the overwhelming majority of working Americans. So in terms of political feasibility, the original New Deal benefited from multiple successive Democratic congressional majorities that, of course, supported President Roosevelt's agenda. The pendulum between legislative majorities swings back and forth much quicker today. This, of course, contributes to why legislators pursue these big bang approaches to passing public policy, given the risk that the governing coalition will no longer be in power two years later. Is a legislative program possible over this long of a time horizon that the Green New Deal is proposing? And if so, what is the pitch that you and and your 
colleagues and legislators are making or intend to make to Republican opponents? Great question. So two-part answer, really. The first part is to recur back to something I mentioned a moment ago, which is that we really are serious about our intention of having Green New Deal projects underway in literally every congressional district. And again, this isn't simply in order to win Republican support, although, of course, we welcome that and expect and anticipate that. It's also just because we just literally want the Green New Deal to benefit everybody. We really do think of this as something that is for America, not just for certain sectional interests of America. We really do think of this as something that is literally for every single American. And we're serious about that, and we seriously intend to push that to sort of make it work that way. And we think that that in itself is going to bring in a great deal of Republican support, again, just as defense expenditures today enjoy widespread Democratic and Republican support across administrations and across Congresses, right? One thing you almost never see trimmed or cut back on when it comes to congressional appropriations in this country is defense spending. And that's the case whether you have a Democratic Congress or a Republican Congress, or Democratic House or Senate or a Republican House or Senate, a Democratic president or a Republican president. Defense is always there. It's always big. And we think that's, again, partly because you've got defense projects everywhere all across America. So why not? You know, everybody agrees that we have to be prepared for war and hence agrees to all of the appropriations that we do for defense. Why wouldn't we expect the same thing to be done and for people to have the same druthers when it comes to what the famous American philosopher William James called the moral equivalent of war, which is what? Revamping our economy and addressing the existential climate crisis represents. So that's the first part of the answer. The second part of the answer is in addition to all of that, there does appear to be a long-term secular shift underway. And by secular, in this case, I mean trans-temporal shift underway in American politics in the sense that this is the year that the millennials officially become the largest demographic in the country. That is to say, for the first time since the 1950s, the baby boomers are no longer going to be the largest constituency. They're still going to be the second largest for a long time, but those who were born at the very front end in, say, the mid-1940s are, in some cases, dying now. And, of course, they're not being replaced by new baby boomers. So the millennials are sort of, they're the future, and they're actually more than the future now. They are the present. And the generations that follow the millennials, of course, are coming up through the ranks now as well. They are also large generations, and they too, of course, are the future. And the thing is, all of the polling data suggests that the millennial generation and all of those who are younger than the millennials are considerably more progressive in their political orientations than were their predecessors. These are people who all came of age after the Soviet Union had collapsed, after the Cold War had ended. And hence, these are people for whom the idea of a collective agent acting on behalf of all of us to address legitimate collective action problems in order thereby to expand the sphere of practical liberty that in individuals can enjoy is not something that kind of smacks of, you know, an enemy economic system like communism or what have you to them, right? They don't have those sorts of ideological blinders or those those sort of silly, you know, chicken little attitudes toward addressing collective action challenges collectively. So our belief then is that you're probably going to have very long-term democratic majorities in the Congress going forward. 
And even if you don't, even if you shift back and forth between Republican administrations and Democrat administrations or Republican Congresses and Democratic Congresses, we think that Republicans themselves will be much more progressive going forward because, of course, again, they too are going to comprise more and more millennials relative to non-millennials as far as their constituencies go. And those millennials as a whole, not just as you know, self-identified Democratic uh, millennials, are much less scared of the citizens acting together for some purposes, even as they continue to act individually or severally or separately for other purposes. So the resolution has been introduced. The conversation has been started. There are co-sponsors. It's top of mind for presidential candidates in 2020 on the Democratic side. What's next? So there are some things that we think that we can do even in the coming two years while there is still a Republican in the White House and there's still a Republican majority in the Senate, notwithstanding there not being a Democratic majority in the House. There are a number of infrastructure projects in particular that we are quite confident that Republicans and Democrats alike are going to be behind. Indeed, we anticipate that President Trump himself is going to be excited about these things because, of course, as you know, he ran in significant part on a platform that involved massive new infrastructure investment. So we believe that we can actually get serious infrastructural projects underway even in the next two years before the next election occurs with very, very broad bipartisan support. Similarly, we think that we can get lots of really effective legislation passed in the coming two years with broad Republican and Democrat support, including Trump support, when it comes to revitalizing our national manufacturing base. This is, again, another thing that Mr. Trump ran on, and it's something that many Republicans now agree has to be addressed. We've ceded to our competitors out there in the global economy, most notably China and Germany, but also other competitors, much of what used to be our manufacturing prowess, what used to be our state-of-the-art, cutting-edge, most advanced vanguard modes of production and manufacturing. We've given that stuff away in recent decades under both Democratic and Republican administrations. And because Democratic and Republican administrations alike are responsible for that gigantic giveaway to the rest of the world, I think that's part of why Democrats and Republicans alike now agree that we should do something to reverse that trend and to take it back. Another thing worth noting in this connection is that green tech itself is a big part of what we gave away. The United States invented most of the most cutting-edge green technologies, most of the most cutting-edge, state-of-the-art technologies when it comes to infrastructure and manufacturing capacities were invented by Americans here in the States and were first done and first offered here in the States. But because they weren't nurtured at the front end in the way that a new crop that's just beginning to grow under a very hot sun has to be nurtured before it can become a sort of self-sustaining crop that then is growing under its own power, so to speak, even with the sun and indeed using the energy of the sun rather than being burnt by the sun. In the same way that that's true of crops, it's true of many emerging technologies. We didn't do that nurturing. And in consequence, what's happened is that China and Germany in particular, although not solely, have taken the lead from us in our own technologies. That's the thing that's so astonishing, right? A case in point, for example, the United States invented the economical, cost-effectively producible solar panel, and we were the first large producers and consumers of these panels. Now China is by far the world's largest producer of them, by far the world's largest consumer of them, 
and by far the world's largest exporter of them. Why? (laughs) That should be us, right? That's our stuff. We invented that stuff. Similarly with lots of other technologies, right? Batteries, right? Battery technology for electric-powered cars, right? Various other forms of solar and wind technology or wind-capturing technology, various forms of hydroelectric and hydro-capturing technology, all of this, I can, you could go on and on and on. You could, a huge list. All of this stuff is dominated. All of these industries are dominated by our competitor jurisdictions now in the rest of the world, even though we invented that stuff. We take that back. We become the world leader again. And overnight, we become a manufacturing powerhouse again and an exporting powerhouse. That, again, seems to be something that Republicans and Democrats alike are down with. They all like that idea. So we're quite convinced that even with Republicans holding the Senate and the White House for the next couple of years, we can get really big stuff done on manufacturing and on infrastructure in that green way. And again, final point, just to sort of reiterate one more time, none of this has to be even framed as green to be desirable. If you frame it simply as most advanced or most cutting edge, which it is, you're going to have everybody supporting it. And then the green is just a sort of a side effect. It's a kind of fringe benefit that comes with it. Again, because, you know, precisely because, as I noted earlier, all of the most advanced and cutting edge stuff now just is green. So even if you weren't looking for the greenness, you would get the greenness anyway as, again, a beneficial side effect simply because that's what all the modern stuff is now. It's green. So strategically, and perhaps from a place of cynicism, it seems that this idea that the U.S. is falling behind in all of these technologies, you can actually use that as a tool to convince the more nationalistic and patriotic sectors of the electorate to get behind this. Like, that's a really interesting component of this that I don't think has gotten too much attention, at least in my sort of reading of the coverage. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. I mean, that's been sort of underplayed in the same way that many other features of the Green New Deal, including, you know, the climate crisis that lies behind it as one of the reasons for it, is also underplayed. I think it's underplayed for the same reason that we talked about before, that at the moment, Lots of people on the right are sort of fixated on the congresswoman and seem so keen to kind of attack her for reasons that have nothing to do with the Green New Deal that they basically just make use of the Green New Deal as something that they can mischaracterize, misdescribe, just invent features of that really aren't even there, like taking away your hamburgers and your ice cream, for example. And so they don't tend to sort of pay any attention to this kind of economic nationalist sort of benefit that would come of this. We, for our part, are very keen on that. We are, in a certain sense, economic nationalists ourselves, although that phrase obviously has a kind of a nasty valence. I want to emphasize that doesn't mean that we're sort of atavistic about this. We don't think that the world is zero-sum. We don't think that the only way the United States does well is if other countries that are competitive of ours do poorly. We think that, you know, for the most part, most of the world's principal challenges are challenges that can and should be addressed collaboratively by all of the nations of the world acting as equals in the same way that we think most national problems should be dealt with, with the citizenry as a whole, everyone acting as equals. So we're not like, you know, we're number one, we're number one, or, you know, my country right or wrong and screw China and screw Germany or whatever. We're not thinking along those lines. That's not how we think. But we do agree uh, with even some people on the right, I take it, that there's no reason to sort of unilaterally disarm 
when it comes to being a manufacturing powerhouse and when it comes to having state-of-the-art infrastructure, all of which, by the way, could only be built by Americans right here in the country, right? All of which is inherently domestic, none of which is going to be or can be done by, you know, Chinese firms or German firms or whatever. We don't think that there's any reason that why we should just sort of give all of that sort of prowess away so that, you know, not only are we not number one, but we're not even number five or not even number 10, that we're like at the back of the pack, right? We think that we should be right up there at the front of the pack, whether we be uniquely at the front or whether we, we be sort of sharing the status at the front of the pack with a number of other advanced sort of vanguard jurisdictions. We just don't think we should just give away that kind of prowess. It doesn't make any sense from the point of view of our foreign relations, and it doesn't make any sense from the point of view of our just our domestic economy and the well-being of our citizenry. So in that sense, we think that there's a kind of convergence with or overlap with what some folk on the right have come to push or to appreciate right now as well. The only difference being that you know we're, we're not particularly interested in demonizing competitor nations. We, we do think that competition with other countries should be conducted in a spirit of fairness and sportsmanlike conduct, so to speak, or even cooperation and collaboration. But that being said, again, there's no reason as far as we're concerned as to why we shouldn't be right up there in the front rank of nations when it comes to the most advanced forms of production and infrastructure, again, all of which we invented. So the concept for a Green New Deal has been around for some time with, I believe, Thomas Friedman coining it in, in 2007. But it seems that even supporters of a Green New Deal were surprised with the rapid ascent it had to the sort of apex of political discourse just sort of right after the midterms in November 2018. What do you think brought about this so suddenly? So, yeah, why now? Like, so why the critical mass has been reached now rather than 10 years ago or why the... The, the tipping point is now rather than before. Yeah, and I guess the other question, you know, I, I've also seen polls that sort of illustrate that only 18% of the public actually has an opinion on the Green New Deal. So, you know, what part is sort of media overplaying it? And I guess what sense is there that there is this growing sort of interest in sort of a big program like this? So I think there are basically two reasons. As you suggested, we do sort of stand on the shoulders of giants in many cases, right? Van Jones was another early pioneer, right? Many, many uh, great thinkers and and very helpful public-minded people have floated the idea of a Green New Deal for quite some time. I think the reason that it really is getting play now, why, why this has become the moment rather than 10 or 11 years ago or 12 years ago or what have you, or rather than even five or six or seven years ago, is basically for two reasons. Um, the first is we recognize now a full decade after the crash of 2008 that we still haven't fully recovered, right? That we haven't done the things that we all thought we would do in that first year or two after the 2008 crash, right? Remember, President Obama campaigned on some you know big infrastructural renewal, but then he takes office and it turns out there aren't any quote-unquote shovel-ready projects. And so the stimulus pushed by Larry Summers and others at the time, largely took the form of very temporary tax cuts rather than actual productive investments. And what's happened as a result of that is that the chickens are sort of coming home to roost, right? We haven't had that full recovery, and people have finally kind of grown impatient with that lack of a full recovery as wages continue to stagnate below the top of the distribution, 
as people continue to struggle to keep making ends meet and to meet their health care costs and their housing costs and so forth and their education costs as private debt loads continue to rise again as they were doing before 2008, precisely again because incomes are too low. I think there's this thought, well, shouldn't we have done something bigger in 2009? Let's do it now. The 10-year anniversary of the 2008 crash seems an opportune time to take stock and say, okay, what haven't we done yet and do it? That's reason number one. Reason number two is what we talked about before. All of the new reports that have come out from the top climate scientists are to the effect that we really are now imminently on the cusp of reaching this sort of tipping point where it's going to be impossible to sort of turn back to rescue the planet. So there's an urgency now about a Green New Deal that wasn't quite as acute, let's say, a decade ago. I mean, it was there. There was very good reason on environmental grounds as well as economic grounds to do this a decade ago. But now, you know, times are running out. We really have very little time left. So that's adding to it as well. And then finally, sort of thirdly, but these are just sort of particular instances that you can think of as especially salient, I guess, examples of both of the two things I've just noted. There have been a number of scandals that have emerged recently that have to do with economic injustice and climate or environmental injustice at the same time. So think about Flint, Michigan, right, and the scandal surrounding the Flint, Michigan water supply. That, on the one hand, is a perfect exemplar of what's come to be known environmental racism or environmental injustice, because, of course, there are actually poor white communities in rural America that have problems just like Flint, Michigan's. There is a real concentration of environmental dysfunction and, indeed, environmental toxicity in particular areas of the country that have been traditionally disadvantaged and even downtrodden over the course of our history. African-American communities, largely urban, many uh, Latino communities, both urban and rural, and then many so-called poor white communities, predominantly rural, have been bearing the brunt of climate injustice and climate and, and environmental degradation for decades. And in consequence, a lot of horrifying things have been happening of late as those particular, again, chickens, as they say, come home to roost. So that's kind of made both the economic problem and the environmental problem sort of more immediately experienceable as something that's very visceral and very acute and very concrete. Every time there's a Flint, Michigan-type story that comes out, this is a story both about the environment and about our economic troubles and about the injustice that continues to characterize our economic arrangements. Even if we do better now on justice than we did years back, we still have a long way to come. So I think that's playing a role too. The fact that we're approaching a tipping point in the macro sense has resulted in our reaching various tipping points in a micro sense, like Flint, Michigan, and like lots of other such cases. Great. So I'm going to play hardball for a minute. Okay, Okay, so get ready. Not really. (laughs) But um, your arguments in favor of the Green New Deal and your predictions are are very rosy, very rosy, that we will see this bipartisanship, that we will see this, this mass influx of support from the public. I'd love to hear what you think are, you know, a couple concrete roadblocks that you foresee in pushing this forward. Sure. So I think there are two, I'm going to call them surmountable obstacles, or let's call them hurdles, since people hurdle over hurdles. I used to be a track runner. and I did a hurdle event. So I'm going to think of them as hurdles because I actually do believe that they're entirely surmountable and indeed that it's all but inevitable that they will be surmounted. But that being said, they are hurdles, and I think there are principally two of them. The first is, to go back to something I noted earlier in connection with another question that you posed, there does seem to be this obsession on the right 
about some Congress members who are primary initiators of or sponsors or boosters of the Green New Deal, most notably, of course, uh, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, but also some others like Senator Bernie Sanders, for example, and Senator Elizabeth Warren, both of whom are also really gung-ho about this. And insofar then, as people have political reasons or motivations to try to tear down those individuals as individuals, they will view, I think, the Green New Deal as a convenient rubric under which to conduct those attacks in order to disguise their nature, to make them look as though rather than being ad hominem personal attacks on individuals who obsess these right-wingers, to make them look instead as like policy objections to a program like the Green New Deal itself. And we see that kind of thing happening already, of course, in a very big way. And the principal form that it's taking is essentially the whole cloth invention of the sort of pulling out of your backside, so to speak, of various alleged components of the Green New Deal, like taking away your hamburgers or taking away your ice cream or prohibiting air travel or prohibiting automotive travel. Anybody who wants to see what's in the Green New Deal resolution can find it immediately simply by going to a little site called Google. There's a great infrastructure for you. And just type in the words Green New Deal Resolution. Type in those four words in that order. And the very first thing that will come up is the congressional resolution. And they will find nothing in that resolution that even remotely connects up with these lies that are being told. So the first hurdle, I think, is going to be dealing with these lies that are being put out there not because people have actual objections to the Green New Deal resolution, which they either haven't read or they've read and don't care about because what they're really trying to do is something that has nothing to do with that content, or because, you know, again, they're just very keen on attacking these individuals. I think we're going to surmount that because it's so easy for anybody to read the actual resolution and it's out there all over the place now. So, but, so that's surmountable. The second obstacle, I think, is a little bit less formidable at the front end, but it is ultimately going to have to be confronted and dealt with. And I think we're going to easily surmount this one, too, or get over this one. And that is that there is a kind of an old guard among so-called you know, incrementalist or centrist Democrats. These are you know, sort of basically conservative Democrats who are sort of leftovers from or holdovers from the era of the, of the so-called uh, Democratic leadership, DLC sort of leadership era of the early 1990s, the sort of Clintonian Democrats, these so-called third-way Democrats. A lot of these people sort of cut their teeth on and sort of made their, made their bones, as they say, back in the early 90s with this kind of Republican light sort of ideology or way of thinking. In effect, all of these people were considerably to the right of the old Republican president, Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon himself would be too left-leaning, I suspect, to be part of that Democrat old guard from the old DLC group, the sort of Clintonians. Now, these are the people who are going to say, you know, they have a personal stake in everybody's affirming incrementalism, right? In other words, if the whole country agrees that the problem over the last several decades has been that we haven't been ambitious enough, that our plans haven't been big enough, that we haven't really been grappling with our problems on a sort of an adequate scale, if they buy into that, what they are effectively buying into is a repudiation of their own vibe and indeed their own identities. In a sense, I think what they worry about is that their entire experiment of the 1990s and 2000s is going to be viewed as an experiment that failed, as a mistake, right? As essentially a misconceived strategy or stratagem right from the outset. 
And it's very hard, right, if you're in your 70s or your 80s and you're basically looking back on your life rather than looking forward to sort of many, many years ahead where you can continue to contribute, you've got a very strong subconscious reason to, you know, basically attack or lambaste anything that basically stands as a kind of implicit repudiation of your past, of what you've done. Now, my own thought is if you're actually serious about public policy and about the good of the public, what you do is you say, well, that approach that we took was the best that could be done at the time. We had to deal with the debacle of the Jimmy Carter presidency or the debacle of the George McGovern candidacy. This was the best way we could actually get Dems in the the Congress and in the White House. And we did get some good things done. I mean, some good things happened right during those years. But then to say it was good for then, it's not good for now, that's a way of rescuing your own sort of past at the same time that you recognize the need to do something a bit different going forward in the future. But I think a lot of people either haven't thought of that sort of way of threading the needle or they just can't bring themselves to doing it. So these are the people who are saying, oh, this is too big. Oh, this is crazy. This is, you know, sort of pie in the sky. And then these are also the people whose economists will say, oh, you can't pay for that. It's a, it represents potential fiscal disaster, blah, blah, blah. And then they start, you know, kind of trafficking in all of this kind of nonsense, bastard Keynesianism, as the great economist Joan Robinson called the sort of people who called themselves Keynesians, who don't include and never did include, by the way, Keynes himself, who himself famously said, I am not a Keynesian. By the way, that's a kind of an interesting thing. Marx himself said, I'm not a Marxist. Keynes said, I'm no Keynesian. It's almost as though for every name that you can find that has basically formed the root of a name with ism at the end, the actual original bearer of the name repudiates the ism. David Ricardo repudiated so-called Ricardian equivalent. This could almost be a theorem or an axiom. But in any event, you've got some people who call themselves Keynesian economists who typically associate themselves with the the so-called democratic center, the sort of Clintonian democratic center, who are likely to say at some point in future, oh, you can't spend this much. It's going to become inflationary, blah, blah, blah. And we have to deal with that too. Now, I put out, as, as I think you guys know, a big piece in Forbes just a month ago that was meant to be and is still meant to be and is functioning as a comprehensive list of literally every reason why the pay-for question is not a real question and why the inflation question that it really boils down to is not a serious question either, right? $7 trillion in war expenditures and tax cuts over the last decade and a half, no appreciable gain in inflation. Fed trying to raise the interest rate up to 2% from below over the last decade, only made it within in, in several quarters. There's still no spread between inflation-protected treasury securities and non-inflation-protected securities, meaning in turn that the markets see no appreciable inflation threat. Again, the boosting of productivity through the expenditures means that you're actually acting in a counterinflationary way at the same time that you're spending. And then finally, of course, there are lots of ways to deal with inflation were it ever to emerge, including not only sort of targeted taxes in particular realms where inflationary pressures build up, but also just financial regulation, which happens to be, of course, one of the hats that I wear here. I teach financial regulation, a big part of financial regulation where we talk about banks or investment funds or investment banks or insurance companies or any other kind of financial institution, as anybody can tell you, is so-called capital regulation. That's just essentially the requirement of higher margins and to impose those higher margin requirements as a macroprudential tool to tamp down on credit generation, i.e. money generation, in the event of some sort of inflationary pressure developing in some subsector or some sector or the economy at large. 
Would have been great to do that in the housing sector and in the financial markets in the lead up to 2008. That's what that was in those markets. That was hyperinflation, notwithstanding all these orthodox economists saying, oh, that was a time of great moderation for 30 years. There was a hyperinflation in those markets. There were ways to deal with it. We didn't do it. Next time, we'll deal with it in the event that that kind of thing happens again. So again, if people want to read more about this and get the full list, this thing's been apparently read 60,000 times now or something, which is flabbergasting to me that that many people would read anything that I would write, but it's right over at Forbes. It's just the Green New Deal, how to pay for it isn't a thing, dash, and inflation isn't either. And I've put out quite a few other pieces in Forbes and in the, and the Hill and in the Financial Times and elsewhere on the Green New Deal, so people can read more there as well. But if the pay-for question is foremost in your mind, go to that one. That's the one I hope every Clintonian Democrat, every so-called center dem, will look at so that they can sort of assuage their concerns. And then we get over that hurdle as well. Well, I, I must say that I certainly subscribe to Hawkism. Um, <laughs> so sweet. <laughs> Thanks so much, Aaron. Um, yes, of course. And I, uh, I as well, to Jobism. <laughs> uh, yes, to, to Jobism and to Hawkism. I love that. So final question, Professor Hockett. What's the primary takeaway you would like our listeners should take away when they consider the impact of G&D? The primary takeaway I would really want to fixate on more than anything else, if I had to choose one, really would be the every congressional district point. This is literally for everybody. We're not just saying this. We really mean this. And we have to mean it because it's not going to succeed anyway if we don't mean it. If we don't make a good faith effort, if we don't make a bona fide attempt at getting real, substantial Green New Deal projects in literally every congressional district of the country, it will be much harder to make it happen. It will also be much harder to call it democratic or just. So if there's one takeaway that I want to emphasize above all else, I'm not just saying this. I'm not being, you know, sort of rhetorically flourishful. I'm not just sort of, you know, talking out of my hat or just sort of overly excited. I mean this absolutely as literally as can be. I don't mean it figuratively literally. I mean it literally, literally, that this is for everybody. This is for everybody. And so everybody's contribution is eagerly awaited. Everybody's opinion, we want to hear. Everybody's thoughts, everybody's suggestions, everybody's inventions. You know, I'm getting tons of emails from people saying, I've invented a new form of hydrogen fusion or this, that, or the other thing. Please, everybody, send them in. Send in those suggestions. We're looking at everything, literally everything. We think every American has great ideas to contribute. We want to hear them all. We think every American has a right to benefit by the Green New Deal. We intend to make every American benefit by the Green New Deal. You know, if you have to focus on one thing at the expense of other things, let that be the thing, because that's what's going to make it work. That's what's going to make it be good. And that's what's actually going to rescue, I think, our economy and our climate. Fantastic, Professor Hawkett. Thanks so much. And we certainly look forward to having you back again. All right. Thanks so much, Harrison. I, I love talking to you guys. Greatest questions, most fun conversations anytime. Thanks so much again. Thanks. This episode was produced by the Present Value team. Michael Brady, Caroline Wright, Chris Alberico, Bernardo Espinosa, Serena Elavia, James Feld, Jack Moriarty, and Jonathan Tim. I'm your host, Harrison Job. Our engineer was Sam Lupowitz. Music by Pottington Bear. Logo by Kalechi Pomongo. Special thanks to Cornell's Language Resource Center for their technical assistance. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.